Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Mark and Sarah talk about songs. Talk about songs. Talk about songs. We sure do. Uh, and sometimes we wonder how do you talk about songs to an angel? <laughs> Oh, uh, yeah, we are back. It's episode 97. Thanks so much for your patience, uh, everyone, as we traveled slash uh, got our April acts together. But uh, taxes are filed, uh, passports are stamped, and we are back with a um, sort of semi-unofficial ranking episode involving TV themes of the 90s. Mark. Please explain how we will be uh, investigating these themes today. Okay. And also, how did we choose these particular themes? Because uh, obviously there are so many 90s TV themes that deserve consideration, not least, go now, go. <laughs> <laughs> and if you don't know what that means, we should you should just tweet us and we'll explain it later. But just know, go now, go. Anyway. Uh, so the five themes that we're going to talk about today are five theme songs for 90s television shows that were successful as charting singles. And we are going to talk about them in chronological order of their release. And each, since there are five songs, Sarah and I are going to give each song a point ranking, one through five. So for instance, the song that I think is the best song, I will give five points. The song that Sarah thinks is the worst song, she will give one point, and, and so on. Was that a struggle, or what? <laughs> <laughs> and we also invited our Patreon patrons to participate. We polled them, and their ultimate rankings will also contribute to the final tallies. The song that the patrons like the most will get five points, their second favorite song will get four points, and so on. And along the way... Because I've looked at the Patreon rankings and I've gleaned a bit from Sarah, let me guarantee you that we're going to have a lot of crazy shit happening today. <laughs> <laughs> like, I guarantee you, do you have a seatbelt? Did you get that bike helmet? Let's go. Okay, let's go. Um, why don't we get started with a clip from the aforementioned How Do You Talk to an Angel, which was the theme song of the short-lived The Heights starring... Uh, <laughs> former uh ray pruitt and i believe current emergency room doctor jamie walters among others let's hear a clip tell me tell me the words to define the way i feel about someone so fine how do you talk to an angel <laughs> it's like trying to catch a falling star. Um, I rewrote the lyrics to this to How Do You Catch Some Falling Barf? Um, but that doesn't necessarily <laughs> reflect my ranking. Uh, do you want to begin our discussion of this one or shall I? Oh my God, there's so much to say. I, several years ago on the fine website previously.tv, 
I wrote a little something about the strange journey of this song, and I'll just recap for you listeners now what that means. So The Heights was a Partridge Family-style show about a group of friends who formed a band called The Heights, and then they released an album called The Heights that starred that featured all of the actors in the band. Although, other than Jamie Walters, I don't really know how many of those people were actually playing music. Probably none. I um, will say the, that uh, I'm pretty sure actress Cheryl Pollack, who was like everywhere in this era, was not playing the saxophone. But Zachary <laughs> Throne, later the KCU station manager in uh, for the gang at college in Beverly Hills, Downers 2 and O, was also in... The, um, was also in that show and like because he kept showing up as like a music adjacent person he may have been playing who knows oh, okay also, who cares so so two cast members of the heights went on to appear in 90210 not just one interesting mm-hmm. uh anyway so the thing that was fascinating about this song at the time it's one of the very rare tv themes to reach number one on the charts they have the theme from Soul Train, which you'll hear more about later in this episode for reasons you'll understand, uh, reached number one. The theme from Miami Vice reached number one. And then the Heights theme reached number one on the charts in May of 92, which was the same. The, the first week that this song was at number one was also the week that the Heights was canceled. <laughs> and it is the most delicious schadenfreude possibly ever. The song reached number one, and the show was canceled. By the time it was at its second week at number one of two, the show was dead. But the song lived on for another few weeks. Uh, I just have always thought that was so darkly awesome. I I think it's uh, fitting as well. Because (laughs) this song is so... It's one of those like Marie Celeste songs where like it's it just keeps going. Like, it almost wrote itself, and then there's no, like, living creature involved with it. Like, it is the most flawlessly extruded cheese log with nuts that you could imagine. Yeah. <laughs> I, my God. It is, it, it is, what is that uh, Hillshire Farms? It is the Hillshire Farms gift box of pop songs in that it is perfectly serviceable, but you can tell while you're tasting it that there are a lot of fake chemicals in there. And you feel kind of bad about yourself because you didn't hate it as much as you feel like you should have. Yeah. And then you're fat suddenly. Um, I will yeah. <laughs> I will also note that uh, Richard Marks, our um, sort of distant podcast cousin who we have covered on this podcast before and who has a podcast called Song Talk. So I feel an even more of a kinship. With him at this moment, Endless Summer Nights is like the 10 bazillion times superior version of this song. We didn't need another oh, one. Oh, yeah. Especially not from someone who pushed Donna Martin down the stairs. Yes. And see, that's another thing that's so interesting is that Jamie Walters, shortly after this song was a number one hit, played a, a wife, a girlfriend abuser. And then he released a song. Do you remember? Hold on. Oh, yes. Deep between us. That song was co-written with the one of the people who wrote How Do You Talk to an Angel? And if you listen to the two songs in tandem, it's like, yep, the same sub-Richard Marks, sub-Brian Adams impulses are at work here. And as I say that, it makes me realize, like you said about Richard Marks and really about a lot of those Brian Adams ballads, it makes you appreciate that as 
uh, let's say middle of the road as those songs are, that they do have a spark. Because you hear this song, which is just the most gentleman's sea type of song, <laughs> and you're like, oh, right. There's actually a little more personality in what Brian Adams and Richard Marks do, and maybe that's why we don't, we haven't completely forgotten them as a culture. But at the same time, oh, the other thing, before I forget, if you, maybe you've clocked this already, Sarah, but the very first uh, seconds of this song sound exactly like Don't Dream It's Over by Crowded yes, House. Like if do. you, I always think I'm listening to Don't Dream It's Over when I hear that guitar strum at the beginning and then I'm yeah. not. Yeah, and you but wish I, you were. I, and so this Franken song, <laughs> yes. I don't know, like it's not, it's not great. And here's a hilarious thing um, on my 90210 podcast, again with this, when Ray was on the show, we were working off of the DVDs and they couldn't get the rights to hold on, which he had to sing like every fucking week because whatever. And uh, so you're always coming in with him like playing the final chord and everyone clapping. And it's like, uh-huh. <laughs> like, it's hold on. They Everybody couldn't. calm down. The, the, because when you said before that he's an emergency room doctor, you don't mean on a TV show. You mean that's actually in the world what no, he's doing I mean, now, right? he is one of several 90210 cast members like of a season or two who were like, nah, quit the business. Like um, Dead Scott, Douglas Emerson, went in the Air Force. <gasps> who shot himself? Oh, in the cowboy hat. Went in the Air Force. Was like, I'm not good at this and I don't like it. So he joined the military. Okay, good for you. Well, damn. Okay. Yeah. Well, so, but what you're telling me is that Jamie Walters, who gave up two types of entertainment careers, acting and singing, somehow they couldn't get the rights to his number 15 peaking ballad to be on the DVDs. Yeah. Wow. Okay. 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 Like, you don't think that, oh my God. Anyway, that's hilarious. So I, however, did when this song came out, uh, by the cassette single and i think it's largely because it was that time in my life i was i guess 13 when this song was really popular and that was just like hey if it's popular i guess i like it and now it's like it's one of those songs that because i'm so familiar with it uh i don't hate it and i have therefore put it smack in the middle of my rankings uh i put it in third place and gave it three points okay um, it's like gentleman C. It's the, the, the gentleman C of my rankings. As I well. um, this one benefited from most of the class failing, so it got a B. I put it at number two okay. and gave it four points because it wasn't as um, thoroughgoingly loathsome as certain other entries. Well, and <laughs> I also feel like I was thinking about this a lot. Nothing. So uh, endless repetition is a good way to kill the magic of a song true and no song is going to get endlessly repeated more than the theme song to a massively popular television show because that and if you watch that tv show you're going to hear that song possibly a thousand times Mm -hmm. because of reruns and such right so it's like the heights also it's not like anybody watched that show so this (laughs) is not a song that has been played over and over and over again and I do want to point out before we go further, I didn't watch any of the TV shows that we're talking about today. I watched like one and a half. Interesting. And isn't it funny because we have both now written about television professionally, but 
Like, and it's not like I didn't watch TV in the 90s. God knows. Well, some of these uh, are I pretty just... major gaps. Like, that oh, neither yeah. of us watched Friends is, I mean, yeah. Yeah. I think I watched, in total, five episodes of Friends. Maybe. Yeah, that sounds about right. Same. And I know that you, for a fact, well, we'll get to those other shows later. One of them you definitely watched. Uh, uh, <laughs> oh, there's a story. But why don't we move on to the Friends theme? Well, but... Before we move on, I should add that the patrons, however, were not as generous. <laughs> they they were not feeling it. They gave this song one point. They put it in last place. And based on some uh, of the comments that I was reading on uh, our Patreon page for this poll, I think a lot of that had to do with just the fact that nobody, everyone was like, who? Who dis? Get off my property. <laughs> anyway. So, Sarah, yes, why don't you go ahead and you, you've mentioned it already, but what is our next, what's our next selection? Our next selection is the Rembrandt singing, I'll be there for you. Uh, there will be no mistaking this if you have lived in the world at any time, because um, it's from Friends. And not, not only did that show go on for many years, but it's been uh, sort of unearthed by an entirely new generation of like tweens and millennials. And, and the so, Chinese. Yeah, so this is this is a um this is definitely one where the repetition may have killed the magic or is it? Oh. Let's hear a clip and then discuss. Uh, clap, that clap, clap, line... clap. Sorry, go ahead. Clap, 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 clap. That's all. That's all I was yeah. saying. That line where he's talking about um, you're still in bed at 10 and work began at 8. Like there was sort of a nod to the full length version of the Cheers theme song, which we should oh. we should get into sometime because there's like trans issues. Happening. I was going to say there's like a transphobic verse of the Cheers theme. It's yeah. not even transphobic. It's just like your husband wants to be a girl. Oh, well, like, let's go get okay. drunk. Okay. <laughs> Norm. <laughs> oh, geez. <laughs> or Ooh, should shit. I say Norma? Um, oh. Yeah, geez. Who's transphobic now? Sorry, everyone. Um, if that was too far. Uh, this song, the video is like self-satisfied and dumb. And it's like the whole cast like dancing around the Rembrandts who actually look a little annoyed that they have to do this. Um, I'm sure they wiped their tears with $100 bills. <laughs> The construction of the song is sort of like it's sort of this almost cynical in the way like you don't sit down to write a song called I'll Be There For You and not think that it's going to get some pickup as like a grad song or whatever it is. Like, I hope I've had I hope you've had the time of your life. Like, I am so sure that Green Day was like, uh, this is going to be great. We're, we're never going to stop making money on that song. With that said, I think the song in full 
is better than it's given credit for. It is a little dated, but the bridge is excellent. I like the harmonies and it will get stuck in your head like just someone pouring crazy glue into your ear. There's something to be said for that. So this one, again, there were a lot of hateful choices here, but I was still surprised that this was my least hateful slash actual favorite. So I had it at number one with five points. Oh, Sarah, perhaps things are not going to be as crazy as I suspected because I also found myself really happy to hear this song again because I don't watch Friends and I never watched Friends. So to me, this was just like a hit song from 20 years ago. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier that the Chinese are watching Friends because I think it was as recently as 2011 that that was the number one show in China. Sure. But like, I didn't watch Friends in China either. So, and <laughs> what I find so interesting about this song is it was written by like seven people. The Kaufman and Crane, who created Friends, pitched in. The two guys from the Rembrandts pitched in. This songwriter named Allie Willis, who co-wrote uh, Neutron Dance by the Pointer Sisters. Oh, September, that's September and Boogie Wonderland by Earth, Wind, and Fire. She oh, co-wrote. man, those are great songs. And What Have I Done to Deserve This by the Pet Shop Boys, she co-wrote. Like, those are all great songs. And then she also contributed to this. Okay, great. Uh, there's like So there's like a hundred different people from a hundred different backgrounds working on this song. Uh, I was reading up on the history of the song. I, I found a lot of articles about it in the Wayback Machine. Um, because in the early 90s, you know, every shitty regional newspaper had to do its little squib article about where's the theme song from? Because, you know, you've got to fill that entertainment page with something. <laughs> but, uh... The the Rembrandts thought that they were going to be able to just sneak this song in and not get credited for it and be able to just have this moneymaker that would never be identified with them. But then forces being what they were, the song became popular and they were asked to go back into the studio and write it as a full single. They never anticipated that this song was going to be a single, let alone be, they had to like scrap the original pressing of the album of theirs that had just come out at the time so they could put this song on it. Oh my God. And they went through that classic, they, 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 from what I can tell, they've gone through that classic arc of artists who have huge monster hits where they're like, I hate this song, it's taking away from my art, to now they're like, oh, the reason I have a career in 2018 is actually because of this song. Although I do right. like other Rembrandt songs like This House Is Not A Home and, um, oh, what's that other song? Well, anyway, they've had some other good songs. Uh, but yeah, despite all of that, despite the overplay, despite the fact that nobody involved with it really seemed to care about it or that it was created by committee, I think it really hangs together too. The lyrics are smarter than they have to be. The bridge, like you said, is great. There is such a nice little bounce to the way that the music works. And uh, s fun fact, the, the fake drummer in the music video, uh, his name is David Gibbs. He was not... A member of the Rembrandts. They did not have an official drummer, but they hired him to be in this video. And now he is one of the nicest theatrical press agents in New York City. Huh. And uh, David Gibbs plays the drums, now represents really cool and weird experimental theater in New York City. So anyway, all of that being said, I have a lot of really positive feelings about this song too. I also put it at number one. Nice. I also gave it five points. And the patrons really like it as well. They put it in second place, giving it four points. Oh, God. I really tremble to think what they voted for in, in number one. And I, I feel like I know what it is. And I think I'm going to barf. 
In a coincidence that is just too delicious, we are going to take a break from discussing 90s TV themes to talk about a 70s TV theme as part of our latest pop chart astrology reading. Yes, that is the time when I take a song that was number one on someone's birthday and use it to extrapolate that person's entire destiny. Today's pop chart astrology reading is for Rachel, and it was sponsored by Rachel's friend Caitlin. And Caitlin, Rachel would like to say happy birthday and thanks for being such a good friend for the last 25 years. She's so glad you live on the same side of the country now, and she wants you to come over soon for a game night. And girl, you better go, because game nights are fun. Now, Rachel, as I'm sure I don't have to tell you, you were born on April 23rd, 1974. And that means the song that was number one on the day that you were born was T-S-O-P, parentheses, The Sound of Philadelphia, by M-F-S-B. Ah, that's a lot of letters, but before we get into all of that, let's take a moment to listen to a clip from your number one birthday song. So again, the purpose of this reading is to chart the destiny of your success based on that song and what it means that it was number one on the day that you were born. And there is so much to unpack here, but the really overarching theme of all of it is a little bit yes, a little bit no. Uh, Here's what I mean. For one thing, that song was the theme song to Soul Train, and it was the theme song to Soul Train for most of that show's decades-long run, and yet it was released under the title T-S-O-P, parentheses, The Sound of Philadelphia, because uh, Don Cornelius, host and producer of Soul Train, did not want the name of the show associated with it as a single for whatever reason. He He later went on to say that that was a bad idea. Uh, Also, T-S-O-P might sound like the name of, I'm sorry, MFSB is the name of the group that recorded that song, and that might sound like the name of a band, and it kind of was, but at the same time it kind of wasn't, because it was also, it was actually a group of session musicians that were assembled to record this and a couple of other instrumental tracks for a couple of other things. Uh, And MFSB ostensibly stands for Mother, Father, Sister, Brother, but it maybe doesn't. That actually has been reported to just be the clean, uh, parent-friendly version of the letters, uh, when really the musician said it was uh, meant to say stand for motherfucking sons of bitches, which is what they would call each other when they did something really awesome in the studio. So there's a whole lot of yes and no going on there. But uh, one of the things that's really interesting is that despite... Oh, and also, the song is essentially an instrumental. It's one of the few instrumentals to hit uh, number one across the history of the charts. But it also kind of isn't an instrumental because there are uh, some vocals on the track from the uh, 70s girl group Third Degree. So it lives in a space of ambiguity. And I feel like that is something very valuable for us to consider as we consider your destiny. But one thing that isn't to be considered ambiguous is the fact that this song is considered the first true disco song to hit number one. So what does this all mean for you, uh, Rachel? Well, here's what I would say. 
live in the power of ambiguity. If there is something in your life, personal, professional, whatever, it's up for you to discern, where you feel like you are more comfortable being more than one thing simultaneously, do not accept anything less than that ambiguity. That is actually going to be the source of your strength. Maybe you want to be a little bit one thing and a little bit of another thing at the same time. Great. That's what you've got to be because that is the path to your success. And in so doing, you may end up discovering that you've created in your life the very first disco number one, meaning you might discover that you were able to launch something great that echoes out beyond you in some way because you were willing to be multiple things at the same time, even when it might seem easier to just do one or the other. So again, I would say don't be afraid to be many things at once and uh, don't be surprised if that allows you to start something great. Uh, Rachel, I hope that you enjoyed that birthday reading. And Caitlin, thank you so much for sponsoring it. And listeners, if you would like to sponsor a pop chart astrology reading for yourself or someone that you care for, you can go ahead and shoot us an email at talkaboutsongs at gmail.com. That's talkaboutsongs at gmail.com. And we will let you know everything you need to get that ball rolling. And now back to 90s TV. I was, I was shocked, is what I will tell you. But before, before we do anything else, let's move on now to our next song, the theme song from the Jennifer Love Hewitt, Matthew Fox, Introducing to the World show, Nev Campbell as well, uh, Party of Five. This is Closer to Free by the Bodines. Girl, let me before we get to this, Sarah. I never watched this show. Why do I know so much about it? Why do I know that Lacey Chabert? Why do I know her name? Why do I know she was in the show? Why do I know so much about Party of Five? Um, I watched it sort of on and off in the earlier season. I think I watched seasons like two through four, and then it just went completely berserker. And like Paula Deveek's eating disorder was so evident and I just couldn't even look at her. Mm. I hope I'm not slandering her, but it was, I mean, it seemed quite clear. Um, but this song, ugh, I mean, the harmonica, the everybody free instead of three. Uh, it's just so girl. strained and labored and uh, it goes well with the uh, content of the show, I think, without being too on the nose. it's But it's very of its time. Uh, this guitar break towards the end that is just, it, it just keeps going. 
Like I think in some other dimension, that guy is still playing. <laughs> you know, but it's yeah. Like there were songs that I hated more than this, but not much. There are, and here's the but, thing: this song was not explicitly written for to be a TV theme song. The only one of these songs that we're discussing today that was explicitly written for TV actually was the Friends theme, which is interesting. But uh, this song sounds like it should have only been 30 seconds long to me. Yeah. Because this piece of shit song is the same thing for over... It's like three and a half minutes of the same thing. And it is the most preschool level lyric writing I have ever heard. And look, I know that a lot of songs are built on nonsense words, Louie Louie, etc. There are tons of great rock songs that have really stupid words. But there's something about... The fact that these mind-numbingly stupid words are repeated over and over and over again <laughs> on top of music that, like you just said, is just the same thing. And there's some guy just playing that one wah-wah pedal for the rest of his life. I just find this song, it's like some... It's like the zit remedy. Do you remember this song from Degrassi? No. Everybody wants something they'll never give up. <laughs> like everything about it is so... But they were 12. Yes, but they were 12. And, like, uh, I feel like what happened here <laughs> is that this band called the Bodines, which I also feel like is the most cheap Florida bar name for a band I have ever oh. heard. We're the Bodines, <laughs> and the D is capitalized. It's Big oh, B, ew, Little O, it Big is? D. Big B, Little O, Big D, E-A-N-S. No. Maybe it's two guys named Bo and Dean? My name's Bo Dean. Y'all, I went down there to the pick and pay, and I bought me 13 cans of corn. And you know what? I spent more time picking out corn than I did writing my piece of shit song. God, makes me... Gee, listeners, where do you think Mark ranked this? Because... But so wait, you ranked it next to last? Did I... Did I... No. No. Uh, no, I ranked it right in the middle. Oh. Cause... Gentlemen, boy, C. do I fucking hate Paula Cole. <laughs> All right. Well, I ranked that shit last, and I gave it one point. I am fine with that. There was shit I hated more, but this is some hateful shit. And I want to just also say, due to some weird chart rules at the time, even though I'll Be There For You reached number one on the Hot 100 Airplay chart, because it was not released for purchase as a physical single until very, very late in its run it did not become eligible for the Hot 100 until its airplay had almost tapered off. Therefore, it peaked on the Hot 100 at number 17, which is completely erroneous. That is a completely false impression of its popularity. Meanwhile, this big old piece of shit, (laughs) which even I in high school knew enough to hate, peaked at number 16, one point higher. So that means that in the annals of Hot 100 history... This is a bigger hit than the Rembrandt song, but that's not right. Your history book is lying to you. It was not the War of Northern Aggression. It was the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Okay? So. So that but, means that this song came closer to three. Oh! Oh! oh everybody won. Everybody barf. <laughs> everybody Ugh. poo. Yeah, there you go. So here's the thing. Our patrons... And patrons, I'm I'm speaking to you now in a low voice. <laughs> oh no. I love you. It's true. Like the things that you have brought to our lives, your funny comments, your incredible support, it means so much. But you put this song at number one. <gasps> number one. Patrons. Number one. What? <laughs> Although more of could you be worse. More of you, more of you voted for this song. 
than any other, and I am I'm dealing with it. Uh, look, we're not we're not angry. We're just disappointed. <laughs> so five five points from the patrons. Whew. Ooh, I just got a little sweaty. I sweaty sweaty. I don't know. It's like I've oh, it's like I just ate a hot pepper. Okay, so of rage, Sarah. Yes. You have perhaps already tipped your hand on how you feel about our next song, but why don't you go ahead and introduce it? Um, I will. Uh, I'll just play a clip, and I will say a little prayer for me <laughs> and the English fucking language. This is Paula Cole's I Don't Want to Wait, a.k.a. a cat being attacked by a room full of rocking chairs. A.k.a. the Dawson's Creek theme song. She had two babies One was six months, one was three In the war of 44 Every telephone ring Every heartbeat stinging When she thought it was gone Calling her Oh, would her son grow to know his father? Who cares? <laughs> That you had to hear this song again. <laughs> uh, it'll be sorry. You'll be fucking sorry. Okay. Say a little prayer for I and the scansion of sorry are unacceptable. Uh, and I have to say, I did not include the open up your morning light and say a little prayer for I section because it, this song, there are so many parts of it that I, the clip would have had to have been three minutes long yeah. to incorporate both that and the chorus. Anyway. I mean, okay. So my career began uh, recapping Dawson's Creek with my esteemed colleague and work wife, Tara Ariano, at a little site called Dawson's Rap, which became Mighty Big TV, which became Television Without Pity, which was sold, and now we do Previously.TV at the end. I did not recap it for the entire series run, but I probably had heard this theme song, um, including like the first watch and then going back to watch it again for the recap. I think I probably heard this song several hundred times. I never enjoyed it. Uh, There was also a (laughs) twop trip to Vegas and we did karaoke and some wag decided that Tara and I should sing this song, which is seriously five minutes long. It, no part of it is in either my range or Paula Cole's PS. Tara fucking killed this song. It was so much better when she sang it than when Paula Cole sang it. <laughs> what the fuck is going on in this song? Why is there shrapnel? Why is she dressed as a French courtesan in the video? Why are these lyrics so sophomoric and self-important? What is going on with the shrapnel? I'm asking again. This, and it like it's his father and his father and his father did it starts like with the bridge and then it ends with it and it's all breathy and she's not a good singer and it just has not aged well it's like someone baked Tori Amos into a cake and left her out in the rain I fucking hate this song it was never not going to be last I mean I actually had some doubt I was like I don't know this searching my soul song and this could give Paula a run for her. nope not close Number five, one point, and I'd also just like to kick it in the balls. I would like somebody to print the song out on like a 
person-shaped piece of cardboard so I can kick it in the balls. <laughs> I hate it. Well, and also, Mark. Dawson's Creek returned to previously in a, some way, shape, or form also, did it not? Um, we have had, I mean, occasionally we would do, like I did a piece, I did a that moment piece being like, I was really wrong about James Vanderbeek and he was excellent playing drunk in this one episode and right. was super satisfying. Like, I think that show actually held up better than one might think it did. But I mean, we had to, we had to watch it and it was not great. And, but my point being that even in your recent endeavors, you have had to re-encounter this song. Oh, yeah. Because you've continued to need, for professional reasons, to re-watch Dawson's Creek. Uh, yeah. Um, so just like safety tip, you guys, if you think, like, oh, I'll do this at karaoke. Like, it's really hard to do, and you'll wish you'll wish that you were dead. You will not want to wait to kill yourself. If you think that you know this song... You either know only the Dawson's Creek version or the radio version, but the album version is the karaoke version, and the album version has an extra verse, and the part where she's talking about fathers is like three times longer. (laughs) There's really a lot. It's like an epic length collection of ideas that have been stitched together with pink thread that was bought at a Lisa Frank store or something. (laughs) So, uh, also, this song peaked at number 11. Uh, it was Paula Cole's second hit after Where Have All the Cowboys Gone, which peaked at number 8. I also hated that song. It was, there, <laughs> so, those two songs are also the reason that Paula Cole won the Grammy for Best New Artist. And then, like Ew. so many people who have won that Grammy, promptly vanished from the uh, public More eye. like shrilly vanilly, am I right? I'm right. Oh! <laughs> Shrilly <laughs> vanilla girl a plus thank you you just got a phd i'm gonna grant you an honorary doctorate on that thank you so much um, wait i think i think we all- have a clip so that i can uh jump back and admire myself hold please <laughs> that's better thank you i'll get it myself um and then this song became an adult contemporary staple meaning adult contemporary stations like the ones you hear in the dentist's office played it forever it was on the chart for almost an entire year so it was really inescapable there for a while not only on tv but everywhere but here's the thing i have a soft spot for paula cole oh no i do uh (laughs) i first discovered her on this vh1 special that uh, melissa etheridge did where she did duets with these at the at the time unknown female artists Um, oh yeah i remember that show i liked that was a good idea for a show yeah and it was only the only episode they ever did was this one and she duetted with a then unknown joan osborne who was in her moment briefly awesome still actually is making really great music but it's just not widely popular but she has remained fabulous joan osborne thumbs up she duetted with paula cole did a song from her first album which is the album before the album that contains this song uh and then she also duetted with jewel but (sighs) the less said about that the better but i so i ended up on the back of that special buying paula cole's first album called harbinger and if you call your first album harbinger you have already indicated that you are a very bookish, serious English major at a women's college who also got a record deal, I feel. Uh-huh. I mean, Paula Cole is, she is someone who, her first two albums are filled with overwritten songs that are like sort of 
the the diary entries of a very intelligent young woman. I mean, she is very gifted. She's very thoughtful. I actually think she has a wonderful voice. I saw her live in Atlanta and was really impressed. And But she was like always someone to me like she was an even weirder natalie merchant she was the (laughs) wow she was the kid she was the kid in your liberal arts college who was like so aggressively into crying when you were talking about nabokov (laughs) and it was she was so smart and so sensitive and so in a slightly different emotional world that you're like i'm impressed by you but i also don't think you're ever going to be fun at a party and she wasn't because she was always in the corner and she would be drinking the margarita that everyone else was drinking, but then she would also be talking about how, like, the patriarchal problems of the agave, uh, of big agave made it impossible to enjoy this margarita. Like, so she got a record deal, right? And so she tried all of this really ambitious stuff on her albums, especially the second album, This Fire, which has this song and I Don't Want to Wait, but then has all these other songs that I really, really like. Like, there's this song called Tiger that's about, uh, it's her, like, furious response to a teacher who uh tried to molest her when she was in school and like the song is so angry and so raw and she's also in that way like carrying the mantle that Alanis Morissette was carrying in this period of the late 90s like she's there's just like this raw crazy power about her as an artist yet she is also completely self-indulgent completely undisciplined and sometimes that shit really works for me. I actually quite like the song, uh, Where Have All the Cowboys Gone? I feel like it's so weird and bold to do a mostly spoken word song about masculine archetypes and how disappointing they are for the women who have to marry them. That really works for me. But I get it if you hate everything she's ever done. And I can remember even at the time that this album came out, because I bought this album before this was a hit song. Because um, I... I the the album had been out for a few months even before uh, Where of All the Cowboys Are caught on, and this was the last song on the This Fire album. And I always remember thinking even, what is this song about? Like, why are there 13 generations of World War II veterans and they're all... <laughs> it just was never... I was never really my favorite on an album that I quite well, liked. And then, like, we're at karaoke and, like, we've never seen these lyrics before. And, like, shrapnel comes up and Tara and I just, like, grabbed each other that it was like, where are we? What is this? Yes. Yes. So all of that is a very long-winded way of saying that I put this song in second place, oh. four points, because of my long-standing uh, adolescent affection for the music of Paula Cole. Four points from me. <laughs> hey, hey, I have a right to stand on my beliefs. And uh, the, uh, the patrons put it at number three. Uh, they put it right in the middle. <laughs> all right it's i hope you're vanilla. searching your soul i am very disappointed i'm just kidding <laughs> i really don't know any other songs of hers besides those two because i didn't like i didn't like the first one and then after the dawson's creek theme it was like you're canceled in my life well I yeah can't. there would literally there was literally no reason for you to do that and then also like she was also really really into making a big public show about how she didn't shave her armpits oh yeah and it was like like, girl, fine, fine. Don't shave your armpits, but, like, don't act like you're a warrior for not doing that. Like, just, it it's just the thing of, like, you're tw- she was, like, 22, 23, 24 when all this was happening. And it's, like, I just, I feel like I know her. I have known her so many times. Uh, like, yeah, no. This was someone that um, my father grew up, like, half a block from the Bryn Mawr campus. Okay? My grandmother <laughs> yep. lived in that house until she passed. 
uh, we would walk our dog on the campus every time I was visiting. I have seen the, like, where have all the Paula Coles gone? Bryn Mawr. <laughs> Who is wearing all of those crinkly linen skirts? Bryn Mawr. Yeah. Why can't where I find a crochet be- vest? Because Bryn Mawr took them all. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, Bryn Mawr. Stay sweet. Except you're bitter, so stay bitter. And I also do want to just acknowledge the fact that I used to really love her music tells you that I was this person, too. Like, I am definitely a person who got into a really... (laughs) One time, remember after a class in college where one of my classmates was like, criticism is always useless. It does nothing but destroy art. I got this... My friend Heather... We stood outside on the quad and had an actual shouting match with each other. <laughs> but I was like, no, criticism matters. It's an art form. Like, we actually shouted at each other about whether or not uh, theater criticism belittled or supported the art. Like, so I'm not saying I don't ha- – where have all of the polycole impulses gone? Sometimes they've gone into me. So I just want to acknowledge – Oh, same. Like, th- but then, yes. like – all right, but if you turn it in as classwork and everybody else in your um, section shits on it for being too all over the place, and why, like, why is everybody walking around with literal chunks of metal sticking out of their heads? <laughs> exactly. This isn't a metaphor. It's just confusing. And also, why are you screeching? I mean, well, yeah. you just got to take and it. You know, we often say, well, we, people of our age, I think frequently say, I'm so glad that there was no social media to document me at that period in my life. Oh. And Paula Cole had the social media of a hit single to document her at this point in her life. Because God fucking knows what song I would have recorded. But yes, if I had released the poetry, quote unquote, that I wrote at this time as a single, I would be sitting here today knowing that that shit deserved whatever it got. Oh my so, God. Again, I would just yes. get out of head of it and just like read myself. Like I would get yes. a truck with a PA system on it and be like, hi, <laughs> warning, I suck. So now that brings us, uh, <laughs> awkward segue, that brings us to our final song of the day. This is uh, Vonda Shepard singing Search in My Soul which was the first track on a very, very obscure album of hers from 1992 that sold, uh, from what I read, around 6,000 copies. But six years later, in 98, became the theme song for one Ally McBeal. So let's listen to a clip from Search in My Soul. Uh, and if you feel the way that I feel about this song, go to the happy place back at a time when Gil Bellows was still pretty hot. Here we go. Okay, so in the 80s, Vonda Shepard had a top 10 hit as a duet with a guy named Dan Hill. The song was called Can't We Try, 
which I have listened to multiple times over my life because I always remember that Vonda Shepard had this hit. And I'm like, have I heard that song before? And every time I listen to Can't We Try, I can't remember if I've ever heard it before. So that tells you a lot. <laughs> yeah, that's, then, that's relevant info, at least as far yes. as I'm concerned. Then she slipped into obscurity for many years. But according to the internet, one of several things happened. Either David Kelly saw her at a performance and decided she was amazing, or... Michelle Pfeiffer, David E. Kelly's wife, was friends with Vonda Shepard and gave her music to Von, uh, David E. Kelly, or Vonda Shepard somehow sent her music to David E. Kelly. The internet is very unclear about what happened, but somehow David E. Kelly discovered her music and decided to put it in the Ally McBeal show. And again, I never watched Ally McBeal, but I somehow knew that Vonda Shepard was a regular character on the show who played at a bar where all the characters went. And the song became a hit. It was never released as a commercial single, so it didn't chart on the Hot 100, but it did reach the top 20 of Hot 100 airplay, so I'm counting that. Plus, the Alan McBeal album went platinum and was a big hit. So this was definitely like a hit song that you heard a lot at the time. And uh, to me, Sarah, this song, Don't Do Nobody No Favors, I find her vocal to be incredibly unpleasant to listen to. Same. There's something sort of choking cat about it like and i don't know i also feel like trying too hard to be that like warrior woman like do that aretha snarl and it's like but who are you though and on top of that this like pseudo soul alternative style of music is just not i just don't care yeah i i think that what you just said is right that she's trying too hard and, and i feel like if this song were like Natasha Bedingfield's Unwritten, where it's like a little bit breezier, a little bit lighter, it would maybe work better. Yeah. Or if Vonda Shepard had the vocal prowess to really go all in and give us that soulful growl, well, I think then she maybe actually it would work. does. I think she has a perfectly pleasant instrument, but the timbre of it is like tends to be assigned to a genre that I don't find particularly appealing. Like I, rem- right. I watched Ally McBeal a little bit. And the, you know, that the whole episode would stop for, like, basically a montage um, while Vonda was singing was like, who is this for? Yeah, <laughs> precisely. And I don't know. I just feel like this song is sort of, it never quite leaves the earth somehow. It wants to be really, really powerful and and soaring. And I feel like it's somehow bound it, it, it's just leaden to me somehow i've never ever enjoyed it i never have liked it so i put it in uh fourth place if thank o- thanks only to the aforementioned and execrable bodines uh is this song not in last place but i put it in fourth place and gave it two points um that's where i put it and only paula cole kept it out of the basement um none of the quirk of ally mcbeal has aged well uh including the theme and this attempt to like have this chanteuse, like Virgil, in the in the mix. Um, she does seem to have a nice voice, but the lyrics are so anodyne as to be almost a joke. Um, I don't like the style, and the song seemed to just go on and on with no real, like there was no build to it. Like she just jumps into it immediately at yeah, and you're just like, yeah, I don't. <laughs> I don't care. Talk like, about shrilly vanilla. I mean, yeah, just like have some range of emotion within this story that you're allegedly trying to tell 
the video is like repellently forced and uh yeah only because of uh dawson and his creek um has is this not in the basement but yeah it's a it's a bad song never listen to it uh again please promise me number four two points and the patrons agreed with us and also put it in fourth place and gave it two points. And uh, that means that this song, in terms of cumulative points, is our last place finisher. It is ultimately in fifth place. Okay. Uh, and then in fourth place, we have an ignominious tie. Uh, so that song had six points total. In fourth place, with eight points total, is a tie between I Don't Want to Wait and How Do You Talk to an Angel. <laughs> Which means that a default second place with nine points, largely due to our patrons whom we've spoken about this already, <laughs> in second place with nine points is uh, closer to free. Uh. Uh, but in a clear <laughs> first, in a clear, clear first place with fourteen points, uh, is the Rembrandts. I'll be there for you. So you know what? At the end of the day, at least the correct song came out on top i i think so and uh you know there's there's just no accounting for taste and for Bryn Mawr. and um i think we've all learned something very important uh here today and that is this that um perhaps obscurity was the best place for several of our <laughs> <laughs> several of our subjects to be slash uh returned so Everyone, thank you for listening. Patreon subscribers, uh, thank you for your contributions, both uh, fiscal and um, emotional. We aren't really that disappointed in you. Or no, or seriously, never. We love you, and I actually, we're so deeply grateful that you are uh, part of this. All of you who are listening, Patreon supporters or not, it really does mean so much to us that we uh, that you're joining us and. As we get closer and closer to episode 100, I think I'll be more and more inclined to say things like that. So, you know what? We'll be there for you, listeners. And Sarah, I'll be there for you specifically. And I bought you this pet monkey (laughs) (laughs) to show my affection. I'm really more of a chick and a duck girl, but I I appreciate you because we're friends. Ah. This is Mark and Sarah Talk About Songs, hosted by Mark Blankenship, that's me, and Sarah D. Bunting, and edited by Sarah D. Bunting. Need to talk to Mark and Sarah about song requests, ads, or birthday readings? Here's how! Email us at talkaboutsongs at gmail.com, tweet us at talksongs, or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mastus.podcast. And you can become a supporter and producer of this podcast at our Patreon page at patreon.com slash mastus. So until next time, thanks for listening. Mark and Sarah talk about songs, talk about songs, talk about songs.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.